This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the LJS Podcast brought to you by learnjazzstandards.com. If you get value out of today's episode, consider adding value back by leaving us a one-time monthly or annual donation at learnjazzstandards.com slash support. We appreciate your help. Hey everybody, my name is Brent. Welcome to the LJS Podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. And on today's episode 33, I'm going to be looking at some very iconic jazz musicians and asking the question, what made them great? Was it talent? Was it practicing a lot? Or is there something more there? Something more that we don't normally look at or talk about? Something more than meets the eye? I'm going to be going into depth in that. I'm very excited to be talking about that today. Before I do that, I just want to invite you, if you haven't yet, to become part of the Learn Jazz Standards community. This is a jazz community, and I want you to be a part of it. And the way you do that is to sign up for our newsletter. You can go to learnjazzstandards.com slash newsletter. And when you become part of our jazz community, you get on the inside of so many things, and you actually get things that that regular listeners and readers are not getting. So I really want to encourage you to do that. You also get a free ebook, A Jazz Guide to Practicing, when you sign up for our newsletter. So I highly encourage you to do that. Go to learnjazzstandards.com slash newsletter. Become part of the Learn Jazz Standards community. All right, so I'm talking today about two iconic jazz musicians, Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. Now, if you haven't heard of these two big, huge jazz musicians, I want you to stop this podcast and and go listen to some of their music right now because these two jazz musicians are arguably two of the biggest, most important jazz musicians in the history of the music. Of course, there are others thinking about Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis, and we can go on with many, many, many more jazz musicians that have made a huge impact on the music, but Charlie Parker and John Coltrane are two that stand out to me. Charlie Parker really was the one who who blazed the trail of bebop. He really changed the language of jazz and and changed the the trajectory of it and it turned to a virtuosic music largely because of him and his counterparts like Dizzy Gillespie and others, but he really changed the music. He innovated the music. And in the same way, John Coltrane also innovated the music. He and his tenor sax revolutionized the way that people approach the music. And today, in modern jazz, John Coltrane is still highly mimicked and his music has influenced so much of what goes on in modern jazz today. So I really think that these two musicians are really great examples to look at. And what I want to ask the question is, how did they become great? What made them who they are today? What, what, what instilled in them this incredible ability to create 
music that has changed the way we think about jazz, the way we play jazz today? That is the question. And I want to encourage you, in today's episode, I'm really going to be delving into some ideas that come from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. So if you want to do some further reading, I suggest checking out that book, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. And I'm doing some referencing of some of the concepts that he talks about. And and a lot of the arguments that he makes throughout his book about is about how people become successful and the different formulas that get people to that position of success and maybe also why others don't succeed. And one of his big arguments is that talent alone is not what makes you successful. And I'd have to agree with that because I actually know a lot of people. I, I live in New York City, and it's the hub of jazz. It's the hub of music. And it's the hub of a lot of art around the world and different trends and fashions and even business. So I'm really in the center and looking at all of this kinds of these kinds of different situations and different people in these situations. And I know a lot of people that are incredible musicians, incredible jazz musicians, And they're not really succeeding. In fact, a lot of them are having to quit altogether, get a day job, and and almost forget about music entirely. But these are some of the most amazing musicians I've ever heard. These people are incredibly talented. And I see that in a bunch of of different fields here, is, is people who are incredibly talented, incredibly, incredibly talented, yet they're not really making it. They're not really quite pushing it over the edge. Or I also see others that have a lot of potential, yet they just don't seem to quite get over that hump to make them truly successful at their art, at their craft, at what they do. So the problem with attributing Charlie Parker and John Coltrane's success all on their talent is that we see tons of very talented musicians all over the world constantly going unnoticed, constantly not achieving quote-unquote success. Now, the other thing that Gladwell really preaches in his book and and actually uh, promotes is that in order to become successful, you need to practice. You need to spend a lot of time working on your craft. And he references what's called the 10,000-hour rule. You may have heard of it, which simply states that you need to spend 10,000 hours at least on your craft, working on your art in order to master it. Now, he doesn't go into detail about the quality of those hours or any of that or how you practiced or what different environments you practiced in. But I think his main point was simply that you have experience, that you've spent abnormally more amounts of time than the average person would spend. And I think most of us would agree that this is of course true. Everybody knows that in order to get better at whatever you do, you have to practice. You have to take time. And it doesn't matter if you practice 10 hours in one day. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be twice as good of a jazz musician or whatever art you do the next day. It's all about time and pressure, putting in the time, putting in the work over a long period of time, and, and, and continuing to do that. I think we can all agree that that is important. And so that's one thing that we will, of course, see in the lives of Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, is that they indeed practiced a lot, and that certainly aided in their success. But I also want to ask you, is that really all there is to it? Is that all there is to how Charlie Parker and John Coltrane became great? I'd have to say I don't believe so, because I know a lot of people that are both talented and practice a lot, yet they don't seem to be making huge strides in their career or 
standing out more than others. So there must be more to it. And so that's exactly what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how environment and opportunity can really shape how you become a better jazz musician and how you can achieve greatness in your jazz playing and certainly what we should all be striving for. So I'm going to go into these lives of Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and take an in-depth look at them and examine the opportunity and the environments that they were in that caused them to achieve greatness. I'm going to be at the end of this going over some things that we can draw from these two musicians and how we can apply them to our jazz playing, to our particular situations. Let's check this out. What is important to understand is Charlie Parker was raised in Kansas City, Missouri in the 1920s. Now, what's so significant about Kansas City in the 1920s? At the time, Kansas City was a booming cultural center of African-American music, which included jazz, blues, and gospel. So in other words, Charlie Parker grew up surrounded by music. He had the opportunity of, of hearing a lot of amazing musicians come through his city. Another important thing to consider is Parker's father, though he worked on the railroad and was an alcoholic, was a trained pianist, dancer, and singer. So even though his father wasn't around very often, this would have had a big impact on his life to have a parent that played music that was in the arts. Now, allegedly, when his father eventually abandoned the family, his mother gave him a saxophone to help cheer him up. Now, in public school, he started taking music lessons, and while he was still in school, he started playing at the local club scene in Kansas City. Okay, this is really huge. Eventually, he dropped out of school altogether to pursue a full-time career in music. Okay, so now let's stop here for a second. Raised in a huge center for African-American music, a parent who was a trained pianist, dancer, and singer access to music lessons and band classes in public school, a city where he could get actively involved in the local music scene, sounds like some pretty good musical opportunities, right? Right, so let's move on. Now, Charlie Parker, now dropped out of school, was actively playing in the local scene in in jazz and blues bands. And in 1938, he was playing in Jay McShann's band, which toured Chicago in New York. Now, Chicago... In New York, let's take note of this really quick, huge centers for jazz during this time. And and he had a he actually had a regular gig in Chicago for a while before ultimately he decided to move to New York permanently. So he's living in a city with a great music scene, helped him land a gig in a band that went on tour, which allowed him to branch out to two big music scenes and led him to New York, the hub of jazz music at the time and which it still is today. So now from New York, this is where things really started to blossom for Charlie Parker. It was just a domino effect from here on out. Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk heard him play and were struck by his style of playing. He got a gig with Earl Hines. He joined Billy Eckstein's band. In 1945, he really made a breakthrough as he started leading a band with Dizzy Gillespie as his sideman. So these two, they were pioneering bebop together. And pretty soon, he was 
the new big thing and everybody wanted to play with him. So living in New York allowed him numerous opportunities to be heard and to play with other brilliant musicians. Sounds like a lot of opportunity to me. But let's not forget the other side of the story, that side that we talked about earlier, which is the practice side. So as I said before, without practicing, uh, the, the talent he possessed and the opportunities he was given would, would have been in vain, right? So if you, you have all these opportunities to uh, play and you even have some talent, but you don't actually nurture that talent, you don't actually take advantage of those opportunities by honing your craft, of course all of this isn't going to be in vain. That's where that 10,000 hour rule comes in. Uh, so in, in 1954, saxophonist Paul Desmond, uh, hopefully you know who he is, he did an interview with Charlie Parker where Parker said that he at one time was practicing 11 to 15 hours a day over a span of about three to four years. 11 to 15 hours a day? That's an absurd amount of practicing. I mean, think about that for a second. Perhaps Charlie Parker had some talent to start out with, but imagine what happened to that talent when he started dedicating that much time and effort to playing his horn. Now, I don't know if that is entirely true. Maybe Charlie Parker exaggerated some of those hours. Maybe he didn't. I mean, certainly in order to be able to practice and focus on your instrument that long and to do that for, for years at a time, you must be obsessed. And I think everything in Charlie Parker's personality and in his character uh, indicates that he was obsessed, especially in his drug addiction uh, and, and his 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 issues with alcohol, I think, probably would uh, be a backup to that. But let's just not forget about the most important part here. Think about all the opportunities he was getting to play. He was playing locally in Kansas City when he was a kid. He dropped out of school, so you can be sure he wasn't spending his time doing mathematics. He was playing music. He started touring. He moved to New York where he was playing gigs constantly. Think about all the playing time he was getting. Is there any doubt that Charlie Parker's opportunities open up the floodgates for him to to practice more, to become better at his craft? I think that says it all right there. Okay, so now let's look at John Coltrane. We just took a very brief look at Charlie Parker's life. We skipped a lot of things, but we just outlined a few opportunities that he had. So now let's compare in contrast with the tenor giant John Coltrane. Now, unlike Charlie Parker... John Coltrane was not born in a a booming music hub. He was born in Hamlet, North Carolina. However, his father, who was a tailor, was passionate about music and played several instruments. And his mother was also an amateur musician. So he was already born into a family where music was surrounding him. And this is really important. Uh, A lot of us know and understand that your mind when you're young is easily, easily changed. It's like a, a clay mold. It just molds into what it's being surrounded with. So your the younger years are really important. Now, Coltrane, he started playing the saxophone in his teens. He started playing alto saxophone in a community band as well as in high school band. And then in 1939, his father passed away. And, and though his mother and other family members moved to New Jersey, he stayed back to finish high school. And then in 1943, Coltrane moved to Philadelphia and began studying at the Ornstein School of Music. Now, keep in mind, while he may have not had the same music scene opportunities that Charlie Parker had when he was growing up, uh, Philadelphia is where Coltrane's opportunities really began to open up. 
Uh, and during this time in Philadelphia, this is really important for you to understand, it was a huge center for jazz. Jimmy Heath, uh, Philly Joe Jones, uh, McCoy Tyner, Lee Morgan, Reggie Workman, and a, and a slew of other huge musicians came out of Philadelphia. And keep in mind that geographically, New York and Philadelphia are not that far apart. And so the jazz scene in Philly was booming. So this is really where things started to come together for John Coltrane. He was already playing jazz at his community uh, band in his town in North Carolina. He was playing in in high school in, in the band. So he was surrounded by music. He clearly loved the music. Now, he moved to Philadelphia, but all of this got interrupted, though, by World War II, right? Coltrane was deployed in the U.S. Navy, uh, but he never saw battle, okay, because he was stationed in Hawaii. And and this may seem like a setback in a way, and and I'm sure it was to his career to be sent off uh, in the Navy and stationed in the Navy, but consider the alternatives for a second. He could have been deployed overseas, and he could have been sent to battle. I mean, this is World War II, after all. Instead, he was able to regularly perform with his fellow sailors, as history tells us, as, as we understand from history books. Now, surely, much more time to continue honing his craft than others who were sent out to the battlefront. I mean, imagine, uh, you have to imagine that there were lots of other talented musicians that were sent off to war, sent to the battlefield, either killed or coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder and other things, you know, this was essentially, as far as getting sent off to war, this was pretty good for Coltrane. He was playing music all the time, allegedly, with his fellow uh, sailors. Now, when he got back to Philadelphia in 1946, he started studying at the Granoff School of Music. Okay, so this is the second school of music he's been going to. Uh, I can't be sure about um, how his finances was and, and how he got into these schools, but this is all uh, I know. Um, and when he got into the Granoff School of Music, he got involved in a number of bands. He joined Eddie Vinson's band, Jimmy Heath's band, and for a year and a half was, was a part of a big band led by Dizzy Gillespie. And in 1954, Duke Ellington chose him to temporarily replace Johnny Hodges in his orchestra, but unfortunately... John Coltrane's heroin addiction got in the way of that, and he lost his job there. Okay, but let's just look at all these bands he got to play with. So he was in this booming music scene of Philadelphia. He was going to a music school, and because he had had so much time to practice to hone his craft, he was clearly getting really good. And so all of these bands and all these band leaders were picking up him up into his band. He wasn't necessarily the star of the band, but he was in their bands, and that's incredibly important. Now, the big break was in the mid-50s when Miles Davis asked him to join his band. Okay, this is the big break. So clearly, John, Col- uh, John Coltrane was an incredible player at this point, okay? He's had a long time. He's had many years of practice, many years of opportunities playing music in different bands, all right? And so now, in, in he's, he's being asked by Miles Davis to join his band. And we all know the Miles Davis album Kind of Blue from the Prestige record in the Prestige recordings, uh Smoke and Relaxing and all those and, and many others. And from here, Col- Coltrane launches into his own career as a band leader and goes on to become one of the biggest innovators in jazz music. Okay. So let's do a little recap. Exposed to music at a young age through his parents, he had access to music education throughout his adolescent and adult life. He was able to play his horn regularly, even during the war. 
integrated into the booming jazz scene of Philadelphia, made connections, got big gigs, opportunities, one building off of the other. Now, we have to look at the practicing side of things because it's pretty clear that Coltrane's opportunities allowed him to spend lots of time on his horn. Coltrane was also known as, a, as an obsessive practicer. His practice hours were, were similar to that of Charlie Parker's, and there are many stories, whether fact or fiction, of him spending hours upon hours playing just one note or even falling asleep while practicing. And I remember uh, I was at a master class once, and uh, a jazz uh, musician uh, was telling a story to us in the master class. And I can't be sure if it was true, but this is just the story I heard, is that he was on tour once, and one of the musicians that he was on tour with uh, left the hotel that they were staying at. And when he left, John Coltrane was playing one note, just playing one note, one long tone. Now, the other jazz musician, don't remember who it was, left all day. Uh, you know, they had a gig that night, so he left all day, was out exploring wherever. He comes back about six, seven hours later, and he hears John Coltrane playing the exact same note. So he goes up to the hotel room and says, John, what are you doing? Have you been playing this note the whole time? And he says, well, I'm just trying to get the tone right. I'm just trying to get the sound right. Now, that's obsessive practicing. That is obsession to the umpteenth degree. This is incredible. So John Coltrane was an incredible practicer. He practiced a ton. And his opportunities lent him more practice time. So clearly, opportunity and practice and environment really helped John Coltrane become successful. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Charlie Parker and John Coltrane only became great because of the opportunities, environment, and the practice time that they put in. Of course, there are always other factors that play into things. For example, social behavior is a huge factor that plays into whether you open up opportunities for yourself or not. The way you're able to socialize with others and make yourself memorable to others is a huge part of things. Now, of course, that's a factor, and there are many others to consider, but you can't deny that opportunity, environment, and practice is huge, and it played a huge role in Charlie Parker and John Coltrane's success. Now, I want to ask the question now for us. What can we as jazz musicians learn from Charlie Parker and John Coltrane? What can we take away from this? And there's three things that I want to go over. And the first one is talent is not enough. Talent is not enough. You may think you have a lot of talent or you, you may think you don't have any talent at all. Regardless, talent alone will not guarantee you musical success. If, if you believe you are not talented, realize that musical success is still achievable, whatever that looks like to you, whatever you define musical success to be. And if you believe that you are talented, realize that it means very little unless you nurture it. You have to work with your talent, and grow your talent. Okay, now the second takeaway is look for opportunity. Look for opportunity. You may feel like you've been born into lots of musical opportunity, and you may feel like you haven't been into very born into very much musical opportunity. Regardless, it's up to you to either take advantage of it or seek it out. 
So if you walk through one open door, it may lead into another and to another. And if you see no open doors, it could mean that you just need to build one of your own or move into a different house. So you need to look for opportunity. There's opportunity everywhere. You know, a good example of this in my life is when Hal Leonard, the music book publication company, first approached me to write a book for them. At first, I thought to myself, where did this come from and why do they want me to write a book for them? And at first, I thought, I don't know if I should say yes or not. But then I realized, well, there's an opportunity at hand. There's something here that I can get involved with. And so I took the opportunity. Sometimes opportunities present themselves. Some may not be quite as grand as the one I just described for myself. It could be a small opportunity, an opportunity to play a gig with maybe someone that you feel a little intimidated to play with. Maybe they're a better musician than you. But don't let the fear dictate taking that opportunity. Just take the opportunity and do it. It could be small opportunities. It could be big opportunities. Maybe you're not seeing the opportunities. Then go make some of your own. There's always something that you can do with your situation to find opportunities. Okay, so look for opportunity because we know that opportunity is so important. Now, the third takeaway is 10,000 hours. It seems about right. It seems about right. Of course, you could spend 10,000 hours poorly. I mean, it's, it's possible that you might not be practicing in a way that will produce real results. But at the end of the day, musical success is a, a result of time and pressure. So the more time that you spend, the closer you'll get to musical freedom and proficiency. There are no shortcuts. Becoming a better jazz musician is not cheap or easy. It takes time. It takes pressure. It takes the effort to do it, to, to achieve that success. And we see that in Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. Maybe you can't practice as obsessively as they can. And most people can't. And I can't. But the point is that if we put in the work, if we put in the time over a period of given time, we will see results. And that's the important thing. So 10,000 hours, it seems about right to me. All right, that's all for today's show today. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for tuning in. And I want to hear from you. What do you think about this? What's your opinion? Do you have anything else to add? This is a jazz community, so let's all talk to each other. If you're on the website, leave a comment in the comment section below and lend your opinion to the community. Now remember, if you got value out of today's podcast episode, consider adding value back by leaving us a one-time monthly or annual donation. You can do that if you're on the website by clicking the support button below, or you can go to learnjazzstandards.com slash support. That would really help us out continue the production of this podcast. We're going to be coming out with episode 34 next week. We'll see you then. Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. Learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.